Thank you, brother. Well, uh, hopefully we'll be among those who have ears to hear and eyes to see as we give our attention to our brother Mark. Well, good morning once again. Well, thank you. Still awake. Nice. We started on two mountains the mountain of fire and thunder, and the mountain of the righteous men made perfect. And we discovered that keeping the law does not guarantee. Righteousness. You can keep the law and not be righteous. We discover you can love and not necessarily be righteous. You can be charitable and not necessarily be righteous. You can be prayerful and not necessarily be righteous. You can be full of self-sacrifice and not necessarily be righteous. And we said at the start that if we approach Jesus' words with new eyes that he's going to surprise us and he's going to challenge us and then he's going to crush us if we let him what does it mean to be righteous it's just really hard to tell sometimes it seems so obvious what righteousness is but the closer you look the more it seems to sort of flee from you and then jesus says matthew 7 verse 1 Judge not. I have to tell you that I believe this is impossible. We're constantly judging. Why does Jesus come and give us an impossible commandment? Well, you've been here all week. Jesus has been giving us impossible commandment after impossible commandment after impossible commandment. He's giving us another impossible commandment. Now, Jesus is giving us this message for its crushing power. But the thing that needs to be crushed with this message is ourselves. And this tremendous tool that has been giving us in this chapter can also be a tremendous weapon. And we weaponize it by shifting it off of ourselves and applying it to the people around us. Because they will not be able to withstand it any more than you will. You will find flaws in their obedience. You will find flaws in their charity. You will find flaws in their prayer. Flaws in their love. Nobody can withstand this pressure. Judge not. Now, a lot of people stop right there. And they're like, that's it. We're not judging anymore ever again. And ironically, this is a form of legalism, right? Like, no, 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 there's a rule. The rule says you don't judge and therefore it's all good. It doesn't work that way, right? You know, you can't make an agreement with an evil person and say, well, you don't judge me and I won't judge you. And then, you don't judge not that you be not judged. We both get a get out of jail free card. No, that's, that's, not, that's not what he means. So what does he mean? 
right? Why does he come with this bold statement? Well, like we said before, you have a bias. You have a tendency to make the wrong choice. And he's trying to smack you out of that bias. He's trying to wake you up. He's giving you an extreme statement that says you have an instinct to judge. And before you act in any way on that instinct, first consider the possibility that maybe you shouldn't even judge. Maybe you don't have to go there. But it's not here as a tool to deflect personal criticism. If somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I think you're overbearing. You don't go to Matthew 7 verse 1 and say, judge not, right? Touche, shield. You can never criticize me because I can counter-criticize you with judge not. And, and no, that, that's not why it's here. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. That's an interesting question. <laughs> in the way you judged, you will be judged. Now, who, who's doing the other judging in this verse? I, I can't actually quite tell. Is this sort of like Proverbs saying, um, you know, if you behave in a certain way, other people will behave this way towards you. Be aware of that. If you walk around life being judgmental and then you fall in a pit, don't expect everybody to be really sympathetic, right? It, it could be that. But we also know in Scripture that in the case of forgiveness, for instance, that God makes it quite clear that if you go around not forgiving people, don't turn to God later and say, oh, yeah, I want you to forgive me. Right? So there is a divine element to this. The, we talked about the mercy chart, I think this is day one or day two, right? Um, the amount of mercy that you're likely to extend to other people appears to be directly correlated to how long since you've made a big mistake. How long since you have recognized your insufficiency? One of the goals of these chapters is to try to get you to walk around every day feeling your own insufficiency, feeling your own inadequacy. And what this will do for you is it will make you more humble. It will make you more patient. It will make you more grateful to God for the love that he has extended to you in accepting you in spite of all the ways in which you fail. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? When they do surveys of people to itemize their strengths and weaknesses, okay, so if we send out a survey, say, what's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness? And then they sent out another survey and they asked other people to evaluate you on the same question. Okay. Now you may agree, but if you say I have this strength, other people around you will say you have this strength. And if you say I have this weakness, the people around you will say you have this weakness. Okay. We are simply unable to perceive the extent of our own weaknesses. Sometimes they call this the shadow, sort of, you know, psychologists will call it the shadow. You go through life and there's this thing that follows you that you can't see. And it has all these side effects in your life and you're constantly surprised. Why do people react this way to me, right? Like, oh, why does this happen to me all the time? Why do I keep getting fired? 
you know, just to pick an example. That's very strange. And 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 the people around you are watching you in your shadow, and they're like, I don't know why he keeps getting fired, right? But depending on who your friends are, they, they might not tell you. And depending on who you are, if somebody tries to, to give you some subtle information about this shadow and you're like, judge not, I don't want to hear it. We, we block ourselves to the information which would most help us. And we all know it. And so we all actually quite cautious about sharing our flaws with each other. There are serious problems in your character that you are not fully aware of. Okay. Do you really believe that? Can you really accept that? Do you really accept that there's actually a plank in your eyes, not a plank beside you, right? It's not a plank over there and I've got to deal with it. It's in your eye. It's affecting your ability to perceive. The information which is arriving in your brain is faulty. You're not getting the whole picture, is what Jesus is telling you here. You don't have the full picture. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. If you can't see properly, what makes you qualified to nitpick at other people? You can't see, right? Like, do you want a surgeon with poor eyesight doing brain surgery on you? No, right? Deuteronomy 19, 5, 15. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. I really want you to internalize this. Your individual opinion on what happened or what was wrong is not good enough. Under no circumstance is your opinion good enough. But under the law of Moses, no important decision or fact can be established by one person. You need two witnesses, at least two. You at least need a second. Please go for a third if you can. Right? Matthew 18, they just say, keep making the pool bigger and bigger the more serious the thing is because you can't be trusted. You cannot be trusted with serious decisions. Right? Do you believe that? No, you don't. I don't. I have trouble believing that. Like, I know what I saw. I understand. Like, our instinct is betraying us. We think we're trustworthy, and we're not. We absolutely need each other. We need two or three witnesses for every important decision. Verse 5, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You hypocrite. Why does he use the word hypocrite here? What, what does it mean to be a hypocrite? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm actually inviting audience participation. What is the meaning of hypocrite? Being two-faced. Two-faced? Not necessarily. A hypocrite may listen, but the root is actually in the actor, right? So in order for there to be hypocrisy, there's some kind of pretending going on. Right. Some kind of pretending. Now, how is verse 5 pretending? 
you hypocrite. Okay. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That just looks like advice. How does that relate to hypocrisy? Where does that hypocrisy come in? To think that you're qualified, right? If you're pretending, if you're going around saying, I am an eye surgeon, let me take the specs out of all your eyes. It's pretending, it's play acting. You are not an eye surgeon. You're somebody walking around with a big beam in your eye, right? It's an act, it's a charade. And most other people can see through it. This is one of these things that's very, it's another one of these shocking principles, very hard to live. First, remove the plank from your own eye. First, if you're gonna prioritize, here, here is my spiritual life for the next year. Here are my objectives. First, 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 before you, before you start going out there and fixing other people, first, Jesus says. Can we really do that? This is another one of these practically impossible things to do. But every time you find yourself picking at the specs of the people around you, come back to this verse. Can you let Jesus shake you a little bit? First, take the log out of your own eye. And, and there's some question about exactly how all the rest of the elements of this chapter fit together. And what I'm going to choose to do for, for the purpose of this presentation is to suggest to you that everything else in this chapter has to do with this concept. First, take the plank out of your own eye. How do we go about doing that? What are the mechanisms? What are the pros and cons? When you're on both sides of the equation, how do we handle interpersonal correction, right? Before you say, let me, you know, before you say to someone else, let me take the speck out of your eye. What are the prerequisites that are involved? Do not give what is holy to dogs. And do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I struggled with this verse for a long time because I'd never thought of pigs tearing me to pieces. Now, that's a really odd thing. Right. And it turns out, I finally read somewhere that this is actually a chiasm. Have you guys heard about chiasms and introverted parallelisms? OK, they're all trendy now, so I won't spend a lot of time. But the point is that they're bookends around each other. And the thing at the end actually relates to the thing at the beginning rather than the thing immediately before it, which is how we usually organize thought in our case. So in this case, the, the tearing you to pieces is actually the dog, not, not the pig. The pig tramples you and the dog uh, tears you to pieces. And then we see this, um, you know, no man can serve two masters. You hate the one, love the other. If you devoted to the one, despise the other. You can't serve God and, and, and money. And you will find this all over scripture, right? Once you start to see it, it starts to pop up um, all over the place. But, but what does this mean in the context of specks and planks, right? Normally, I've, I've heard this verse used in, in the context of preaching to people, and like you don't go into the disco, is there a disco now? The nightclub, I guess they call them nowadays, and, and start trying to preach there. Right? You don't throw your pearls before someone. That's not the right place. And, and that, that may be true, um, but in the context of specks and planks, I propose to you that 
Jesus is asking you to consider whether people want your help or not. Okay? When you're walking around with that blank in your eye, are they looking for you to help them with their specs? Like if you go into an ecclesial situation and start trying to correct everybody else, yeah, that you, you may cause a whole lot of problems there. And you may want to consider first whether it's the appropriate time. Like there's an appropriate time and place for each kind of behavior. So Jesus used the word beware earlier. And I propose that we should beware of judging always. We presume more mercy than we give. Okay, we expect others to be more merciful towards us than we are inclined to be merciful towards them. We underestimate the magnitude of our flaws. We can't help it. It's the way our brain works. We underestimate how our flaws inhibit our judgment. Right? We forget that our flaws are perception flaws. What you saw with your own eyes was not actually what happened. Okay, like the police know this. Lawyers know this. If you have a crime scene or an accident scene and you get an eyewitness report, the jury goes, wow, yeah, that's it. The, the, people saw it with their own eyes. Completely unreliable. The most unreliable form of evidence in criminal trials is an eyewitness report. Terrible. Like in that moment, you're like you think you saw it. And some people go to their grave with that conviction that what they saw was true. No. And this is a great tool, by the way, in terms of forgiveness. You think back to what that brother said two years ago or what they did, and it still burns you up inside. There's a chance that never happened. And I'm, I'm not kidding. There is a literal chance that that little story that you play in your head never actually happened. Okay? Every time we recall a memory, we rebuild it and modify it a little bit. It's scary, but true. This is tested stuff. Like they go out there and they test people's memory. Your memory is way worse than you think it is. So you know what? Let it go. Right? Forgive the past. We resist fixing ourselves before trying to fix others. We presume that others want our judgment. We think everybody's looking for our opinion, but we hardly ever ask them for their opinion. Right? And sometimes they say, well, wait for someone to ask you for your opinion. It's like, nobody ever does. So I, I better go just find a way to inject it. On the other hand, you know, don't throw your pearls before swine. Are we swine? You know, we're so like, oh, if we throw our opinion and, 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 our, and we try to help people with their specs and they react so negatively. Well, how do you react when people bring things to your attention? Do you turn on them and trample them? Do you tear them to pieces if they happen to point out that maybe there's something you need to work on in your life? We need to work both sides of this. Olympic athletes pay big money to hire somebody to sit there and watch them and point out every flaw in what they do. It's bizarre. Right. We can get that for free by just coming to a meeting on Sunday morning. <laughs> but we don't, right? But when it happens, we're like, whoa, back off, right? Judge not. Who are you? I can I can find a lot of flaws in your eyes too, right? 
It's bizarre. Judge not. I mean, it's an attention getter. It's there to set the bias. But we know, and you know, and you're all arguing with me in your head, that you can't just judge not. Like, there has to be circumstances where we judge. And so we have to face this difficult question, right? Do we judge or do we not judge? Or better said, when do we judge and when do we not judge? So I'm going to just roll through a bunch of scriptures here. We're not going to settle this question today, but I'm just going to put some of the pieces on either side of the fence. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So we have one of the seven ecclesias and there is someone there teaching immorality and they had failed to properly judge, to make a judgment call. In Revelation 2 verse 20, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. 1 Corinthians 5 is really interesting. It starts off, verse 12, what have I to do with judging outsiders? He starts off in an anti-judging position, but he's like, if you have a guy at work who's an atheist and he's drinking too much, going around judging him and staying, you know, parading in front of his house with a big placard saying, you shouldn't drink and drunkenness is like, he's, he never made a commitment to Christ. Like that, that's not your problem. Right. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not do you not do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside, God judges. The, the atheist drunkards, God's going to take care of that. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. First Corinthians 6, verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? So he's talking about conflict within the church here, right? We have two members of the ecclesia that are in some sort of controversy. And I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who is able to decide between his brothers? We have this problem in our community. They had it back then. Right. It's tragic that with all the scriptural wisdom that we have in our communities, frequently we end up in conflicts where we can't even find one person that both sides will trust to make a judgment call. That's the we, we need that judgment. That's a judgment that we're lacking. So those are a number of verses that indicate that we need a certain amount of judgment in our community. And then you have Romans 14, verses 3 and 4. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Qualifications. Who are you? What exactly qualifies you to go to your brother and be telling him what he should eat and what he shouldn't be eating, right? Are you pretending? Are you being a hypocrite? 
to his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, right? God will make a different judgment than you in many cases. To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Romans 14, verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then let each one of us, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in our brother's way. James chapter 4. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? We just have to be very careful when we're judging. Judging is a very dangerous situation. In many ways, we need it. But when it happens, we should go into it with tremendous trepidation, humility, and fear. We need minimum standards of behavior. But we need to make sure we're not recreating a mosaic covenant. Do we banish people from our community for being angry? Do we banish people from our community for being lustful? Do we banish them because they have not given up all their possessions as Jesus commanded? Do we banish them for not being perfect the way Jesus commanded? But there are other things in this category that we do banish people from our community for. We're somewhat inconsistent in our judgment, and that should be very unsettling to us. It's not about calling wrong things good. It's about determining if we're being compassionate and merciful and fair in the way we judge. How do we maintain the health of the ecclesia? Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. We've referenced this before this week. Our brother Nathan brought this up in his evening address. Verses 24 to 30. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came to him and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Do you, Jesus, want us? To go among the ecclesia and gather up the tares. Do you want us to be evaluating each other and trying to decide exactly how much wheat or tare each one of us might be? And he said, no, 
He said, no. Why not? Well, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat also. You aren't qualified, right? You, si you simply don't have the skills. I, I mean, Jesus knows. Jesus knows exactly who's wheat and tare, but you don't. And so if you go in there prematurely before the harvest, trying to sort of sift everybody into the right category, you're overreaching. Jesus is telling you, you are not qualified. That's staggering. What, what do we do then, right? What this tells us is that our ecclesias should have tears. If you somehow have an ecclesia that doesn't have tares, then you have been too invasive. You have been too aggressive. And it's possible, heaven forbid, that you have destroyed wheat in the process. And you should be very scared of that. You should be very worried that you have taken a brother or sister who Christ died for and driven them away from the fold because you had a plank in your eye that you didn't even realize you had. That should terrify you. None of us should want to stand before the judgment and face the implications of you having driven away one of God's servants. Allow both to grow together. It's against every intuition we have. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. How do we do that? It's terrifying, right? Interesting point that Brother Nathan made is how do you protect the wheat? You make it strong. You make the wheat strong so that it can grow up right beside a tear and survive, right? We need to focus primarily on strengthening the wheat. This is true of our children as well. There's, there's a certain age and stage at which we need to protect our children from outside influences. We need to build a shield, right? Our shield cannot be sustained forever. At a certain point in time, our children will face the reality of the world around them. So in that period, we have to strengthen them so that when they end up among the weeds, they will be able to withstand the pressure of weeds. We need to build a community that is stronger and not a community that is purer because we're afraid. We shouldn't be purifying our ranks because we're so afraid of being contaminated. We should be strong enough. And if we're not, work on that. First, the plank in your own eye. If you are so weak in your faith that you can't tolerate someone who might have an opinion that might be over the line, and it might be, it might be a tear. Is your faith so weak that you can't, you can't be there on a Sunday morning with someone like that? You might need to work on your faith. You should be able to withstand it. Now, this isn't an anything goes principle, right? It's, it's, it's not like, oh, well, you know, let's bring the Catholics in. Let's bring the, like, no, no. Okay. The wheat and the tares are similar, right? It, like, it, it's not like there's an apple tree in the middle of my 
field of wheat, right? Like, but but the point that Jesus is making is when you draw a circle and decide these are going to be the edges of our community, the circle should be wider than you think it should be. And your instinct, you go, well, this, this is the community of the saved. Well, that's that's what you think. And you have your opinion with your plank in your eye. You should draw a bigger circle, a circle that you are not comfortable with. That should be your circle because it's better for you to be uncomfortable than that you should rip out some wheat in your fear and anxiety, right? If your you know, inner insecurity is causing you to tear out the wheat that Christ died for, you are in trouble. Who wants to face Christ in that situation? I know I don't. When in doubt, judge not. Jumping to the next section, verses 7 to 11. Ask and it shall be given to you. Oh, and I mean, this passage has been taken out of context in so many ways that People just assume that, you know, oh, whatever I want, you know, you hear about kids. I prayed for a new bike and I didn't get a new bike. Okay. Let's think about this in, in context, right? What are we asking about? And, and I'm going to choose the lens here. And it may not be the only lens to read this chapter. But if I'm saying I have a plank in my eye and I'm not sure what to do about it, Jesus is saying, ask. Like, you've got flaws. And you're trying to figure out how to work on them. And, and you see the, the, the dogs and the pigs. Don't be a dog and a pig. Like, go to your brother and say, what can I do about the plank in my eye? He says, maybe, maybe he doesn't know. Well, then seek. Go up, put some effort into it, right? Invite information that will educate you about your shortcomings. Okay, don't don't be the other category that doesn't want any information. Verse 12, therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. For this is the law and the prophets. They call this the golden rule. And again, I find therefore, like what's that word therefore? It's a connecting word. How does this, you know, golden rule have anything to do with knocking and asking and seeking? I think Jesus is giving you a hint. Okay, if if you're not getting the information, if you're having trouble understanding how to deal with the plank in your eye, here is a good rule of thumb, right? If you're behaving in a way that you find unacceptable in other people, work on that first, right? All that great insight you have on other people's flaws, well, make a list and say, okay, how am I doing in, in every one of these categories? Why does this work? Why does it work? It works because we have double standards. Okay, this is what Jesus is trying to tell you. You have a double standard. You have one standard for others and you have one standard for yourself. And Jesus is trying to take that standard that you apply to others Swing it around. Come on, let's turn it around. Shine that light on yourself. That's a great starting point. In, in Psalms, it says, acquit me of hidden faults. 
the most terrifying thing is that is this notion that you have these big problems in your life and nobody's telling you about them. He gives us another hint. Enter by the narrow gate. Right? If you have an ambiguity about which path you should take, a rule of thumb is, are you taking the easy way or are you taking the hard way? And if the thing that you're doing is easy, that should be a big red flag. This is a moment you should double check with your brothers and sisters. I'm taking the easy route. Almost always the wrong choice. Almost always the wrong choice. Seek out the difficult choice. This, this applies across so many, so many ways. Um, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing and inwardly, inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. What does this have to do with planks in our eyes? I think what he's saying here is if you're going to go and ask people for advice, make sure it's people who are credible and they have a credible basis for the advice they're giving you. And you may not know that right away, right? The, the outworking of someone's philosophy of life doesn't bear fruit right away. Sometimes it takes some time. So be very cautious. There's a lot of messages that sound very nice, but end up in tragedy. Consider that possibility. Observe. You will know them by the fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He who does the will of my father, which brings us to the next section, which is uh, the wise man built his house upon the rocks. So hard to do this one without uh, singing it. And, and you have to ask yourself, okay, this is the grand finale. Jesus has put together this tremendous, you know, talk, presentation on righteousness. And he ends with this concept. And I have to ask myself, why? Well, when you go to the aquarium and there's a sign up there that says, do not tap on glass. Why would they put that up there? But what, why, why, why would they bother writing that on a piece of paper and putting it up? Because everyone wants to tap on the glass. Because everybody keeps tapping on the glass, right? So when you when you see Jesus giving giving advice, you have to understand that the reason is doing it is because this is what he thinks you're going to do. Okay? After I've given you all this information through all these chapters, the most likely thing for you to do is to be like, amen, brother, and go home and do absolutely nothing about it. Make no change at all in your life. This is the most predictable human reaction to divine insight. Oh, it's great. This is a great message. We love it. We agree with it. It's wonderful. And then do nothing about it. So, at the end of this chapter, Jesus is saying, please, please, I've tried to shock you. I've tried to surprise you. I've tried to educate you. I've tried to warn you. And this is only going to be useful to you if you actually turn this into decisions in your life. You have to turn it into behaviors. You have to do something different in the next few months than you would have done before because of these words of Christ. If you don't do that, you have built your whole religion on the sand. 
And the moment some kind of tragic event happens, your whole structure will collapse. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them, it's a prerequisite, will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. To manifest God's character, we have to do things. We have to engage in behaviors. But we know from these chapters that we're imperfect. So we have a paradox because we are called to manifest God's character and our behavior, and yet we can see conclusively that we are imperfect. What's going to happen when we put these two things together? What's going to happen when you take a bunch of imperfect people and you ask them to manifest perfection? You're just going to have a lot of mistakes, right? There's going to be a lot of mistakes. Now, there's a way to avoid the mistakes, and that is by simply not doing anything, right? And this is the one talent man. I've got a hard master. He wants me to be perfect. The master wants me to be perfect. If, if I go and try to do something with the talent he's given me, I have to take a risk. I, I might do it wrong. I might fail. And so the best way to never fail is to never do anything at all, is to never take a risk. And, and Jesus clearly condemns this. Jesus clearly says, you should be a risk taker. You need to take a risk of failure, okay? It's a risk of failure. It's a risk that the thing that God gave you, you may do something inadequate with it. I bet that's what the other ones did. They took a risk. And this is a situation we find ourselves every morning, right? We wake up and we can try to move closer to God and closer to perfection. But we start off on, on, with this chasm between us and where we should be. And the path to get there seems so difficult and narrow. And we know that nine times out of 10, when we step out, we're gonna slip or stumble in some way. And so we face a, an incredible temptation to do nothing, to sit back, to not make believe. But what we forget, there's actually a safety rope attached, okay? If you step out and you fall, God has built in a mechanism for you to get picked back up again. Micah chapter 7 verse 8, do not rejoice over me, my enemy, though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Romans chapter 5, verses 20. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness, through eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace is our safety net, okay? We know we'll never reach perfection. God has agreed to help us bridge the gap, but he only bridges it if we're moving. He requires us to take those steps. And if we fall on that journey, he will pick us up. But if we don't start the journey, he's not just going to teleport us there either. It takes courage to leave Mesopotamia. It takes courage to leave Egypt. It takes courage to set, step out of a boat in the middle of a storm. And sometimes when we do, we sink. And sometimes Jesus has to reach out and grab us. Pull us back into the boat. Give us a talking to. But then he expects us to get up. Try again. We have to be able to move from crushing to blessing. We started in the mountain of blessing. We go through a crushing process, but we need to end in the mountain of blessing. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. That's what Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says. There is no condemnation. That's an absolute statement. Zero. Now, do you have the faith to believe that verse? That verse takes, a, when you look inside yourself and see what's going on, can you actually believe scripture when it says that? There is no condemnation. This is a test of faith. To be able to say there is no zero condemnation. Not less, not no. No condemnation for those for those in Christ. This isn't universal salvation. But what this verse does is it can take you from crushing to blessing. So I'd like to end where we started. In Hebrews chapter 12. And remind you that you have come to Mount Zion. The city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to myriads of angels. You have come to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You have come to the spirits of righteous men who didn't have what it took but God bridged the gap because they were willing to take the step. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who were warned on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him warns from heaven what do we do in the crushing do we turn away from him or do we pick ourselves up and turn towards him verses 28 and 29 therefore since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken let us show gratitude 
by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hey. 